Um, this is where <clears throat> the reality of there being two perspectives on the world, two ultimate religions, what the implications of that really look like, not just for what we saw in the last session about the sciences, once you've denied uh, the God of Scripture, but for the social order right down to things that we take for granted like marriage and family. In order to begin this session, I just want to read uh, Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 32, 18 through 32 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do, to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a very famous passage of uh, Scripture from Paul's exposition of the gospel, which is the book of Romans. It's a very interesting way he starts here in talking about the foundation of the problem of <clears throat> sin in any culture is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. A denial of there being two, the creator God distinct from his creation, and instead a denial of God and the worship of the creation itself. And this leads to, he says, a debased mind. And of course, there is a whole list there uh, in ver from verse 29 through 32 of the kind of society that develops when the living God is rejected. Now, any Christian who is conversant with developments in our culture over the last 10 years in particular 
especially in the area of human identity and sexuality, cannot help but think that our social order has been handed over to a debased mind. As we saw in the last session, when foundational principles are false, as G.K. Chesterton put it, um, idiocy is the result. And we are living in a time of social, cultural idiocy. And the madness is not limited to a small marginal elite anymore, which certainly in my parents' generation it was more limited. Uh, People often ask the question, you know, where did all these 60s hippies go to? Where did they disappear? They were driving around in their VW camper vans, drinking lentil soup and smoking um, weed and uh, lying in front of buses and protesting this, that, and the other. Where did they all disappear? What happened? Well, they didn't disappear. They went into the university. And they taught your generation, my generation. They became the professors in the universities of the Western nations because they were often the most thoughtful people. They recognized that the culture was adrift um, and saw something of the hopelessness of a secular vision of reality, and it wasn't satisfactory to them. But the direction they moved in is what has come to be called cultural Marxism. And so from the courthouse to the classroom, every major institution in our culture has been affected by a radical revolution against God. Now, the first basic factor of politics for centuries in the West, in Christendom, as we called it, was the first principle that human beings are creatures made in the image of God of God. That was the first principle, that we're creatures of God, we're made in His image. The second principle was that all power and authority to have any legitimacy must derive from God and recognize the sovereignty of God. That was the basis of uh, Western politics. As a result, the states of Europe were formally Christian at least through to the French Revolution 1789. And even after that, in uh, most of Europe and and the British Commonwealth, uh, the supremacy of God and the centrality of the Ten Commandments and the taking for granted of the Christian faith was basic to social life. However, modern political life is no longer interested in the question of legitimizing uh, its authority to do and say what it does. It doesn't believe, as we've already seen Uh, this weekend, that morality and justice can be justified beyond an appeal to man. So remember what I talked about yesterday, if you have denied the creator-creature distinction and the God of Scripture is no longer relevant, then there is no attempt to justify what you're doing sociologically and politically in terms of any higher authority than man himself, than human beings. They're the only relevant uh, unit. Rather, core to political thinking now is the Nietzschean concern, that's following Nietzsche, with the human will and with human power. Will and power. Christianity was dethroned and biblical morality has become viewed as a socially constructed form of oppression. I say socially constructed because we've denied the transcendent, So all values 
at every level are merely social constructions. They're human products. Questions of public morality and justice, therefore, no longer involve God. I could cite to you um, debates from the Canadian Senate from the beginning of the 20th century over the Lord's Day Bill that sound like sermons. In fact, better than many sermons that you'd hear on a Sunday these days in the Western church, where liberal senators are talking to one another about the importance of God's law and, uh, and honoring the Lord's Day and so on. Now the idea of God being somehow involved in, in social political life is abhorrent to many. In short, what's happened is that a theological understanding of reality has now been jettisoned for a psychological understanding of reality. And therefore, because social order, law, justice, and so forth are a matter of human psychology, not anything that's been revealed by God, they become essentially political questions worked out in terms of an evolving social contract. And the popular term to describe this is called progressivism. The problem with progressivism is it doesn't know where it's progressing to. All it knows, all it's concerned with is overturning the Christian order that went before. So if you ask a progressive, well, what's the end game? There's no logical stopping point. Because with, as with most, uh, I, most ideas of revolution, <clears throat> they haven't really thought about what the, uh, what's going to follow the current reality is going to be. At the same time, though, in our culture, we hear much made of the concepts of freedom and liberty and equality. So with me talking about things like totalitarianism and uh, uh, coercion and so forth, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, yeah, well, people are always talking about liberty and equality and uh, freedom and so on, and we're assaulted by this barrage of assertions in the media that social justice is something that can only be served and realized by the liberation of society from previously externally uh, imposed constraints. Those constraints were on human identity, on the family, on human sexuality. However, the goal of this political philosophy is evidently not liberty. It's power, because this is demonstrated, it's actually proven in the fact that over the last century and a half uh, especially, the concentration of power has been more and more centralized into the hands of a, of a uh, a state bureaucracy. Now, most of you are younger than I am, and I'm only 40, um, and we lack, for the most part, because we're not taught political philosophy, generally speaking, in the school, and when we are, it's not, often not accurately taught, political history. Um, we're unaware of the freedoms that uh, we have lost and surrendered with the state control of so many things today, to a large degree, even the state control of the church. Charitable status today, in the end, is about a license from the state for the church to exist as a charity. That didn't used to be the case. The church asserted its own independence. It wasn't granted charitable status by the state. Moreover, medicine is controlled and funded by the state. Education is controlled and funded by the state. Multiple areas of our lives that were independent are no longer so. 
And of course, you're born into this, as was I, and for the most part, we take it for granted that that's normal. Now, the welfare states of Europe are presently collapsing, and they reject austerity, which is balancing the budget, uh, and riot in the streets as a result. But <clears throat> this is a, it's not just a demographic problem. It is a demographic problem. It's an economic uh, problem. It's a social problem. And there is a concentration of power in enormous state bureaucracies. The biggest employer in most Western nations is the state. The result, then, is increasingly that various bodies and even um, tribunals of sorts, human rights tribunals, for example, increasingly limit freedom. Uh, I work for the state half the year, and so do you, because about half of my income goes in taxation approximately, in Canada. Income tax was a temporary measure introduced during the First World War, I believe. Didn't remain very temporary, did it? Yeah. Property taxes didn't used to exist. Taxation is a claim to ownership. So if you claim the right to tax something, you're claiming a doctrine of eminent domain. This has meant that there has been an effort to destroy, or undermine at least, all rival power centers to the state. So let me put it to you this way. What is it that protects you as an individual from the ultimate power stand, of you standing naked before the absolute authority of the state? Well, the only answer to that is that there are other mediating, mediating institutions that protect the freedom of citizens from an overreaching state. One of those is the family. The second is, historically in the West, the church. These are hierarchic, essentially aristocratic institutions. That is, they are not egalitarian in their design. The idea is not to equalize everybody so that children are equal in authority to their parents in the home. And, and everybody in the church equal in authority to the elders or the pastor. They're not egalitarian. They're aristocratic. They are hierarchical institutions. Church isn't a democracy. The family isn't a democracy. Parents don't take a vote. Who wants to be obedient today? All kids, hands up, who agree? It's, they're not democratic institutions in that sense. They are hierarchic, and they're necessary for the survival of civilization. The goal has been to destroy or undermine these to realize an egalitarian society of social justice. That is an equalized society, a leveled society that calls itself just, where there are no distinctions. But to destroy the church and the family is a tall order. How are you going to do that? Well, you have to redefine morality and justice so that the family and the church become seen as instruments of injustice and oppression. You have to make the biblical concept of the family and the church manifestations, therefore, of injustice. Now, that's what I want to talk about, how this is being done. Now, to avoid confusing you all, or upsetting too many of you unnecessarily, I don't mind upsetting you necessarily, but unnecessarily, I don't want to do that, uh, 
when we talk about liberalism and liberty, I'm, when I attack liberal democracy, I'm not attacking liberty. We have to differentiate the two. One of the most important Canadian political philosophers, George Grant, pointed to the important distinction that we have to make between our basic political practices that we call liberal, the, our education in the West called, used to be called liberal arts, a liberal arts from the Latin liber meaning free, a liberal arts, the art of freedom. That was the nature of Western education. How to be free? Well, those political practices were meant to protect individual liberty in terms of the binding character of the rule of law. And so when philosophers or modern liberal philosophers and politicians attempt to clarify, justify, or extend these practices, we are not talking about the same thing. They may interpret things this way, but uh, in a more extensive way, um, and that's what we're critiquing. We're not critiquing liberty as such, as it's arisen in the West through Christianity. We're critiquing the way in which that concept has been redefined by certain political philosophers. Hugh Donald Forbes argues that George Grant objected to many of these theories and, the, and in the process identifies the core doctrine of man that under, underlies modern political life. So listen closely to this. One of the most important political philosophers in Canada, George Grant, this is what um, a, one of the scholars who studied his life and work says about modern political life. Modern liberal philosophers aim to defend and perfect the practice of liberty and equality on the basic assumption that human beings are autonomous. That is to say, free individuals who create their own rules of justice. Modern autonomous human beings do not accept any claim that the form or, con or, con the form or content of justice has been laid down for them by any higher power or authority on whom they depend for their knowledge of right and wrong. Justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven. Moral principles, like all other social conventions, are something made on earth. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent. That is, they must be the result of a contract. And these principles must therefore be rooted in an understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals rather than any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change, but the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical. In other words, the modern concept of freedom has become absolute autonomy. Total independence from any constraint or any definition of justice or truth or right that comes from above, from God. Nothing to do with divine command, nothing to do with God. Anything that we call justice is simply a consensual social agreement summed up in a contract that is subject to change as people's desires and opinions change. The foundations then of modern liberalism, as George Grant have pointed out, justice is not something that is natural or a supernatural virtue, but it comes from a kind of calculation of the social contract. It's malleable. It's a kind of public utility in terms of the greater good. And the greater good is not defined by you. The greater good is defined by a governing elite. 
who will tell you what the greater good is. Many of the things that are taking place in Canada have nothing to do with parliament making law. They have to do with hippie judges redefining human existence. And they were not elected by us to those positions. Now, they may have got the gavel and the gown on now, but that doesn't change the fact that they're hippies. Okay? Cultural Marxists. Ethical evaluation is then carried on with the foggy notion of human interest as the sole criterion, not some a priori, that is, before man's experience, definition of justice, because man believes he is autonomous, and by the use of his reason, he's going to define all of these things for himself. So what I'm trying to show you now is how what we've talked about already works itself out sociologically in our culture, in our courts, in our elections, in our schoolrooms, in our courthouses. Ideas always have consequences. Culture is simply applied belief, as I'm going to talk about this evening. Now, the cultural elite who draw up this contract in the name of the people, for example, Ontario, uh, Ontario's sex education curriculum, which is so controversial right now, it's being introduced by the lesbian premier of Ontario, was in part written and or at least contributed extensively to by a man called Levin, who was admitted to child pornography charges. Now, these are the kind of intellectual elite who are seeking to indoctrinate our children in the public school system. These are Nietzsche's new nobility who will rule the planet. This is what uh, Forbes has noted again, and listen closely. I know you have to tolerate no PowerPoint, but all my points are PowerPoints, so just listen. He says, the horizons of meaning which men think and act, within which men think and act, are simply the creations of great individuals and are not susceptible of rational demonstration or justification. He, that is Nietzsche, called for the new age of creativity dominated by his supermen, those who would create the new horizons that would give a new and better shape to humanity. In short, no God-defining truth, justice, and morality. Nothing is revealed to man. There is no normative creation. There is no normative human nature. Man must play God as his own creator and his own definer. Now, once you have that idea in mind, you can begin to understand what's happening in our culture. Now, there is no possibility, by their own admission, of these new moralities being demonstrated and legitimized rationally. It's impossible to argue with a liberal. It's not rational. You can't argue with a progressive. There isn't an argument for progressivism other than we don't like this past social construction. We've got a new one. Right? The only way to deal with that, with progressivism, is to go back to the very, very religious foundations of the worldview. It's like I've been in the media plenty on the radio and on the television, and it's banging your head against a brick wall talking to these people. Because their worldview is wallist. They've already rejected a transcendent God above who defines life and reality. At this point, what we have then is an existentialist view of man. Now, what that means is that man has being but no essence until you define your own essence. 
you are a bare choice. You create yourself, you make yourself. Your choices define everything about you. In a value-free universe, then, at the social level, you need some kind of way of bringing these disparate ideas that man has about himself into a kind of social cohesion. So the problem is, let's take this room full of people we have here. If, you've, if you're all God, and hell is other people, as I said yesterday, then how are you going to have a social order? Well, you're going to have to come up with some kind of, you're going to have to have a a lengthy discussion about a few points that you can all agree on that are acceptable to you as individuals, and then you're going to enforce that. And really, at the social level, socialism or Marxism, the politics of power and coercion, have become necessary. With all men defining their own essence of life and morality and justice and so forth, You've got an anarchic view unless you can bring about this social contract. And so the individual will to pleasure gives way to, in political life, a collective will to power. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the most famous of the existentialists in the last century, himself joined the Communist Party, which he admitted was a contradiction of most of his other ideas. Because at the social level, he realized that was necessary In order to bring about man's social utopia, you need to coerce everybody into it. You can't have all these gods running around doing their own thing. So in the name of liberty, liberty starts to be denied. At this point, the concern is not with legitimizing or justifying morality or justice in any objective sense. It's with enforcing the will of the elite, of the dominant class, human interests, the greater good, without God. Now, how does that help us in any way with respect to our cultural moment now? Well, I'm going to talk now about sodomy and the sexual revolution, and I'm going to use the real words for these actions, not what the cultural Marxists say we should be talking about. There is no way we can understand what's happened in our culture, the sexual revolution, without realizing that reason, truth, and legitimacy don't matter anymore. They're not interested in your arguments and your reasoning, and they're not interested in what the truth may or may not be, because it's an existential world. What matters is that you're free from God and any imposed external constraints. That's what matters. So if you are a representative of social constraint in the old form, you're a problem that needs to be dealt with. As a result, human sexuality is enmeshed with the political rhetoric of rights derived from this arbitrary social contract. Now, initially we were told, you may or may not remember this, but initially we were told that the new power brokers, by by the new power brokers, by these politicians, that sexual choices were private and that the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. That was said by Trudeau Sr., I think. The state had no place in the bedroom. In other words, we have no business uh, legislating what uh, acceptable or good human sexuality is. People need to do whatever they want. Now, you won't remember this, but um, homosexuality was still a criminal offense right through to the end of the 1960s. 
Can you believe that? 40 years ago, that's where we were culturally. So your grandparents did not have the same view. Some of you are shocked even to hear that. Your grandparents didn't have the same view of human sexuality as our culture does today. Does that, is that because truth has changed? Is that because the truth about men and women and marriage and family, or anything has changed structurally? Or is it because there has been so, simply sociological change in our understanding of these things? What happened initially then was that homosexuals claimed to be victims of discrimination, and they wanted, we were told, to be left alone to enjoy their own sexual desires, to have the right not to have their conduct criminalized. So it was decriminalized in the West. But shortly thereafter, they said that they were in fact victims that wanted remedial legislation to justify or to rectify the injustice that had happened. It wasn't just that they wanted permission, that's what we were told at first, permission to practice whatever sexuality we like. You can't legislate on that. That was granted. But then the objection was, no, we want remedial legislation to rectify this injustice, and by doing so, they proved that this alleged private sexual act is a very public issue. Sexuality is not a private matter. They came out to insist that a toleration of their private act was not enough. They didn't just want to be allowed to do it. They wanted it publicly vindicated as normal. There's a big difference between those two requirements. Now, it's true, of course, that sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in the Christian view is inviolate and private, but there are public manifestations of that privacy. So Robert Riley, in his recent book, and I strongly recommend this book to you, Making Gay Okay, he says this. It's to the point. He says, wedding rings, children, private property, homes, schools, communities, the whole structure and fabric of society, in fact, is built to protect and maintain the conditions for that intimacy and its results. The whole social and political order is supportive of this privacy. It is encouraged and protected by law because it is held to be of benefit to all. That was the idea of marriage. Since, however, homosexuals have claimed the right to marry, the right to adopt children, to pass on inheritance, to be considered spouses, next of kin, etc., and that's proven that the homosexual activist is not simply concerned with the right to privacy. They want public acceptance and support of their act. And this is what's engulfed Canada and most of the West in the last 15 years. It wasn't even law when I first came to Canada. In fact, they believe that the state has every right, therefore, in the bedroom of the nation. Legislating. So, so the state has now redefined the oldest institution in the history of man. Now, of course, it hasn't really redefined it. It's sociologically trying to reconstruct it. Marriage is marriage. It doesn't matter. You can't redefine marriage because God's already defined it. So you can, in, you, you can call it what you want. It isn't marriage. But the state's attempt to do that is a revolution the like of which we haven't seen in 1,500 years. You are the generation that is living through a revolution of the nature of which hasn't been seen, a pagan revolution that hasn't been seen in 1,500 years. 
you think it's normal because you grew up in it and you, well, you probably didn't even watch Friends. That was my generation, wasn't it? And all the, of course, sitcoms and popular culture is what's normalized all of this. Pumps it, began, it, it pumps it all through. Con is a continuous, endless message of messaging to normalize. No one actually claims, of course, the right to do something they want kept private and concealed. You don't ask for public assent to what is essentially secret, but marriage isn't a secret, is it? Marriage is something you do publicly, that is witnessed by others, that has public signs and symbols. So keeping a homosexual lifestyle truly private in the clandestine sense would be an acquiescence to society's judgment that the behavior was wrong. So it wasn't enough to say, well, we don't approve of that, but we'll allow you to do that. We won't criminalize it, which is what they originally said was the objective. That acquiescence has gone. Today, the homosexual increasingly and increasingly representatives of other sexual predilections like bestiality and pedophilia and so on believe that their cause should be advanced on the ground of moral principle of social justice. They refuse to accept that the judgment a judgment that their actions are wrong because of the existential character of our age. If you are defining yourself and truth and morality and justice for yourself, how should, why should anybody tell you what is or is not allowed? This means a legal recognition that obliges all to recognize the legitimacy of the act. So, in fact, sodomy is the essential act which distinguishes a homosexual male from a heterosexual male, and so they require society to, and the government to affirm sodomy as morally equivalent to the marital act. Of course, Paul refers, in under the term homosexual, we are talking about lesbianism and, and, uh, as well as male homosexuality. The ultimate objective moves well beyond the desire for this thing to be legal. When you read the intellectuals in the movement, such as Paula Ethelbrick, she was former legal director of the Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, she said this, and I quote, Being queer means pushing the parameters of sex, sexuality, and family, and transforming the very fabric of our society. We must keep our eyes on the goals of providing true alternatives to marriage and of radically reordering society's view of reality. It's not just about your friend wanting to do what they want sexually. What's happened socio-culturally and politically in our country and in the West generally is a radical social revolution against the Christian faith. It's not just about doing what you want sexually. It's about transforming the nature of reality and how it's understood. That's what the sex ed curriculum is about. This explains the revolutionary desire for legal and political redress. It doesn't actually give us the motive about the revolution, why it's done in the name of justice and morality. There's a theological explanation for that. That's what I want to talk about now. Now, let me add parenthetically that I am not dealing with this today as a pastor. I am a pastor. How I help somebody who comes to me who may be struggling with same-sex attraction is a very different issue to the socio-cultural revolution being foisted on us by law politically that involves human rights tribunals and anybody who disagrees being mentally ill, a homophobic individual. That's different 
from how one deals pastorally with somebody struggling with sexual temptation. Those are two separate issues, and I'm dealing with the first today, not how I would go about dealing with the issue pastorally. Now, the contemporary sexual revolution is, in fact, a walking contradiction because modern man claims, don't forget, this is the foundational issue, that there is no legitimizing of justice or morality beyond human interest. You can't appeal to God. It's just human interest. It's a social contract. And yet, he behaves with moral outrage towards those who would differ from their chosen lifestyle. On their own premises of how they would define social justice and liberalism, everybody has the existential right to their own private interpretation of morality on the one hand. But on the other hand, if you disagree with these sexual practices or believe they are objectively wrong, then there is absolute outrage. A firestorm of abuse will be brought down on your head. I've experienced this in public. I was having a quiet lunch with somebody in, uh, in my area of West Toronto, uh, uh, an apologist who wanted, was um, talking to me about some mentoring, and like, we would, our food was about to be brought to us, and a man got up from a table. It was a nice restaurant, posh end of town. Uh, he was leaving. He paused at our table, and he began to launch into a 30 seconds of foul sexual abuse, uh, 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 sexual swear words, abusive sexual swear words, because he'd seen me on television accusing me of homophobia and bigotry and being mentally ill and effing this and effing that. And this is in front of a whole crowd of people. Something actually which, which he probably didn't realize he could have been arrested. You can't do that. He was fortunate I was a Christian. The biblical explanation for, you see, this intolerance, this anger, this rage that comes with the movement that accompanies the sexual revolutionary is actually the theological reality of sin and guilt. The fruits of it in human behavior. You see, sin always produces moral rebuke in a functioning conscience. Sin, since man, whatever his denials, is a creature of God, if he sins against God, this is why, what Paul means in Romans 1, he inescapably feels a sense of guilt and of moral rebuke. But what do you do with that moral rebuke? You see, if that moral rebuke is left unaddressed by Christ's atonement, you see, a Christian has Christ's atonement to deal with their problem of guilt because we're all sinners, we're all guilty. So our moral guilt is dealt with by the fact that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the table of communion and there, the blood of Christ, which is shed for us, reunites us in covenant relationship to Christ. Our sins are forgiven. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we are wrestling with guilt and shame, we come to the cross because of Christ's atonement, and it's dealt with. What do you do if you don't believe in Christ and his atonement? What do you do with your guilt and your shame? How is it dealt with? Well, you see, chronic guilt leads to a sense of tremendous powerlessness and all manner of sadistic and masochistic efforts to cover sin. By sadism and masochism, I'm not simply referring to uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is a phenomena being read by millions of women, which is part of the pornification of our culture as well. I won't go into that, as I'll never finish. Uh, masochism is, means self-atonement. 
Sadism is to lay the punishment for your sin on somebody else. Masochism is to receive punishment on yourself for your sin. So the reason it's associated with deviant sexuality is because you are receiving or giving or, or lay, you're either laying punishment on somebody else for what you're about to do or you're receiving punishment for what you're doing. That's the psychology of masochism. It means self-atonement. Now, if you live in perpetual vice, you cannot tolerate the abiding burden of guilt and shame. That's why the rates of suicide in the homosexual community are off the charts. What you need is a powerful rationalization, therefore, to justify it. Because if you can't escape the problem of guilt through the cross of Christ by being justified, you must justify yourself. But how do you justify... We all, look, we're all Christians. Well, many of us are Christians here. But whoever we are, whether we're Christian or not, we all know the reality of self-justification. We do it all the time, every day. We justify what we've said, what we've done. In multiple situations of far uh, less significance, we are trying to justify ourselves. Such people, you see, no longer seek to conform themselves to God's order by becoming just. They try to justify themselves by arguing that bad is good. So if you can turn morality on its head, you're free and clear, aren't you? If it becomes good to lie... See, if I'm a liar, then the best thing that can happen for me to deal with the problem of guilt is for the society in which, which I occupy to justify lying, to justify perjury, to make that a, a, a virtue. Then I'm not going to feel guilt and shame, at least not as much, for lying. Now, Scripture says, of course, in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, when this activity is persisted in, this rationalization of our sin, it eventually perverts our ability to reason and actually think properly about reality. What could be more absurd, for example, than saying that justice requires the legalization of same-sex marriage, which isn't marriage? How is that an issue of justice? The same logic applies to things like abortion. We're told today that abortion is the loving choice. You, have, you reduce your carbon footprint and save the planet. So murder is good on the basis of that rationalization. You see what human beings will do to rationalize away their sin. Now, this is increasingly coming to the fore in other claims where people are saying that to, to deny people the right to, and I, I don't mean to be too graphic here, I'm just describing the reality, to sodomize animals, to commit acts of bestiality, is speciesism. That's wrong. Why shouldn't uh, a consenting animal, whatever that means, participate in those activities? It's speciesism to deny human beings that right. It's a matter of social justice to level everything. One is, and remember, there are no ultimate distinctions. Everything is socially constructed. Homosexuality is the, uh, is the sacrament of monism, of oneism. It is the manifestation of androgyny, where the man acts as the woman and, the, and as, a, as both the male and the female. And there's nothing new here, by the way. Nero 
married two women. When Paul the Apostle was writing the book of Romans, Nero married two men. That is the emperor of Rome. Married two men and he related to one as a woman and the other as a wife and related to the other as a husband. This is while he was using Christians as covered them in oil and used them as torches to light up his gardens. Nero. There's nothing new under the sun. Riley puts it this way about the revolutionary change, and this is a very important statement. Listen closely. He says, if you are going to center your public life on the private act of sodomy, you would better transform sodomy into a highly moral act. If sodomy is a moral disorder, it cannot be legitimately advanced on a legal or civil level. On the other hand, if it is a highly moral act, it should, in fact, must serve as the basis for marriage, family, adoption, and community. As a moral act, sodomy should be normative. If it is normative, it should be taught in our schools as a standard. If it's a standard, it should be enforced. In fact, it should be hierarchic, meaning active homosexuals should be ordained as priests and bishops. Sodomy should be sacramentalized. And that, of course, is what many of the liberal churches are insisting on now, that there be, there be a sacramentalization of this in the life of the church. The rationalization, then, on which homosexuality is based requires the consent of the community to its normative nature. And there can be no holdouts. If you're wondering why you feel under such cultural pressure to agree with what's going on in the culture, to agree with what's happening politically, is because a rationalization cannot allow the potential of a rebuke, the, the potential threat of a rebuke, we must all say evil is good for this rationalization to secure itself. Everyone must celebrate the new morality. The Bank of Montreal is recruiting numerous businesses across Canada. Have you heard about this? Including businesses like Home Depot and so on to say that BMO will not use any legal firms or businesses or whatever that do not agree with their equity policies which just so happened to be the querying of culture. So that there is tremendous pressure in the business world. You've got the, the if you've not heard about it, the, um, the controversy over Trinity Western University and their proposed law school. The idea there is that a Christian is not fit to practice law because they don't go along with the rationalization. So if you can deny the law school in existence... How long will it be before a lawyer who is already practicing as a Christian will be barred from practicing law because they don't agree with the rationalization? Or a doctor who doesn't agree with euthanasia be barred from practicing medicine because they don't agree with ending people's lives? Rationalization is driven by guilt, and it exists to maintain an illusion so that this behavior, this immoral behavior, can continue, and it requires the tools of compulsion to enforce the acceptance of that rationalization. And it begins with making sure that all the role models within these um, uh, communities are seen as positive. So if you look at the depiction of your average married male in North American television sitcoms, they're idiots, they're buffoons. Uh, but if you look at the depiction of homosexual males, they're the friendly, cool, well-dressed, all the girls love them, they're the best friend, they help you pick your clothes and so on. 
Right? You have the queering of culture. So even we have the idealization of androgyny in clothing today. So that sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between, is that man's clothing? Or am I in the man's section or the women's section of this department store? You can see I am a trendsetter. Um, all of these things, you see, they start softly, are designed to reshape people's thinking, and then it starts to become tougher. Then you're told you're a mentally ill bigot if you don't agree. And then you're told you're engaging in hatred and hate speech if you don't agree. And then, as happened in Switzerland, or was it Sweden, they'll put a pastor in prison for preaching on it in his own church. Sweden, I think. That went all the way to the Supreme Court there, and finally he was acquitted. Christians are being arrested for speaking on the streets right now, and, and children are being taken away from Christian parents right now in the British Isles for speaking about these issues. It's totalitarianism, it's coercion. Before every major totalitarian regime, you have the preaching of sexual liberation. So what is the nature of this rationalization? We've seen it's self-justification, and it requires the complicity of the whole culture. The nature of the rationalization is that people who, have pra- who want to practice various um, other forms of sexuality that are not deemed normative by God are victims of nature, of prejudice, of oppression. They're not sinners. Sin doesn't exist as a category. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, period. But that doesn't exist as a category. Rather, the self-hatred and loathing and anger and guilt that a person's conscience usually produces in instances of perpetual sexual perversion gets redirected towards society and the institutions that rebuke homosexuality and refuse to accept the rationalization. What are those institutions? The family and the church. Because the family is a walking, living, breathing rebuke of homosexuality. Even when it doesn't mean to be, even when it's not trying to be. That's why they're trying to get rid of the language of husband and wife, of mum and dad in school. Did you know that? They don't even want children referring to their mum and dad in school. That's homophobic. You see, the family and the church victimize and oppress, and so they must be coerced into the new way of thinking. And of course, the best way to do that is to indoctrinate the children. There is a long march through all the institutions of our culture, and then they're they're finally manifest in the Dyke March in Toronto and the Gay Pride Parade, and all the businesses are required to celebrate it along the route of 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 the parade. And children and families are told to come and turn out and enjoy the celebration as naked men... Uh, in bondage gear, act out sexual acts, which you can be arrested for under the law, but the police are told by the attorney general to turn a blind eye because to expose your genitals in public is a criminal offense. I said that on the radio. It didn't go over too well in Toronto. The only culture you see where this process, though, is possible... Because even as I'm speaking now, and I've done this in Toronto, I've spoken in big churches to evangelicals, and even as I'm speaking now, some of you are very uncomfortable in a way that our parents and grandparents would not have been uncomfortable. Why do we feel uncomfortable? Because 
you can only accomplish this kind of a social revolution when the people that you are dealing with already feel guilt. A guilty culture is a weak culture. People who live in shame are weak. Where there is no true atonement, when people are confronted with a rationalization of sin, they feel too guilt-ridden to resist the inversion of the moral order. If you talk to most men living next door with their truck and their gun rack and their kids in school, they don't think that two men is marriage. The majority of Canadians don't think that. It's increasing, of course, among the millennials, your generation. Why? Well, because you're being told this all the time. My generation wasn't told it as much. We feel so guilt-ridden ourselves because of our rejection of Christianity. The ordinary man, even though he doesn't agree with it and is uncomfortable with it, if he was honest, he doesn't want to push back or reject it or make a song and dance about it because he feels already too guilty in his own life about all of his own sins. That's why it takes moral courage to be willing to stand up for these issues. Now, does that mean you have to be sinless to stand up? No, absolutely not. You just have to recognize the relevance of the atonement of Christ in your life. That the fact that I'm a sinner doesn't preclude me from upholding God's standards. But if you've got no atonement, you're so guilty, you don't, well, I haven't got the right to condemn, I can't judge. How often have you heard that in the church? Don't judge. Don't judge anyone. Well, actually, the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus says, don't judge by human appearance. Judge righteous judgment. What's righteous judgment? Righteous judgment is evaluating everything in terms of God's word and his law, not our own standards. So if I'm evaluating other people in terms of my standards, that is judgmental. That goes on in the church all the time. We love that. Oh, he's got an earring in. His hair's a bit long. He smokes. Oh, dear. We've got all these other standards that have got nothing to do with God's law that we are prepared to judge people on. But actually, that's Pharisaism. That's judgmentalism. The only kind of judgment we are permitted in the Bible is to judge everything in terms of the righteousness of God. By your fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. If you can't judge, church discipline is impossible. If you can't judge, a legal system is impossible. To act justly, though, we need to know what things are. My time is almost gone. So you're gonna have to, we're going to have to do all the Q&A this afternoon because this was a kind of concertina session, but it's probably the most important session I'm giving because of the social cultural implications. So I'm going to have to take just a couple more minutes, and then we'll deal with the questions on this in this, this evening's uh, Q&A. The rationalization of sexual sin then due to guilt comes in the form of this self-justification. And those who hold to the old order, who still seek to impose an old Christian outdated foundation on the rest of society, they must now become the oppressed. So the, the Christian was seen as the oppressor because they imposed an external standard on man who is free from God. He's autonomous. They must become the oppressed. So there is nothing more abhorrent to a modern cultural Marxist egalitarian politician than somebody like me. Because I represent the very definition of evil. 
I am a white, male, middle-class, Christian, married, heterosexual man with children. That's evil. It doesn't matter that I might be a nice guy, give to the poor, help my neighbor, and be pretty unprejudiced. That's irrelevant. I am a structural oppressor by virtue of the fact that I belong to a group that supports marriage and the family and is seen as a capitalist oppressor because I have a job. Okay? I'm deliberately trying to stir you up so that you can bring some questions tonight. The question begged, of course, in all of this is what is justice? Justice really is about recognizing things in terms of their true nature. So you give, justice is giving somebody or something their due. When I give justice to God, it's because I honor him as God. I worship God first and foremost above everything else. And then I love my neighbor as much as I love myself. That's, Jesus summarized all the law and the prophets in those two commands. That's justice, to give somebody their due in terms of their own nature. If I treat a man like an animal, I've not done him justice. Because I've not treated him in terms of his nature. The problem we then have, though, is if everybody is defining themselves and defining their own nature... They demand to be treated in terms of their self-definition. So children as young as JK and SK in California are being told to self-identify at the beginning of terms so they can determine which bathrooms they're going to use. Jean-Paul Sartre put it this way, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards defines himself. If man, as the existentialist conceives him, is indefinable, is it because at first he is nothing? Only afterward will he be something, and he himself will have made what he will be. Thus there is no human nature, since there is no God to conceive it. Not only is man what he conceives himself to be, but he is also only what he wills himself to be after his thrust toward existence. So how can you treat somebody according to their nature if they don't have a normative nature? Man is his own creator. He defines himself. Well, the Bible says, as I said yesterday, God alone defines himself. I am that I am. And every other family in heaven and earth is named after him. Man's existentialist reach is to be as God. And hence today, man and woman, male and female, mum and dad, these are no longer binary normative principles of reality. We talk instead about gender identities, gender fluidity that multiplies by the day. There is no objective transcultural justice possible. And we corrupt language in order to accomplish it. Words don't anymore mean what they, they don't correspond to anything beyond themselves. They're just words. So I just make up a word to define myself, make up new pronouns, hashtag and tweet it of my new existence. Well, this can only lead to the politics of power because it is based on the lie. The lie that man is his own God and he defines himself. Man doesn't define himself. God has set distinctions and differentiation into all of creation. And he holds us accountable in terms of it, as Romans 1 indicates. Like all sin, man's rebellion in the sexual order actually only leads to death and ruin. Proverbs 8.36 puts it this way. All those who sin against me wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. We only wrong ourselves when we sin against God. We are the losers. We destroy our own lives and others in the process. 
All true definition, power, and legitimacy comes only from God. And the route to restoration, and there can be a restoration and renewal of people's lives, is in Jesus Christ. For if the Son sets you free, and He can set you free, whatever your struggle or difficulty with sin may be, you will be free indeed. That's the only type of freedom there is. Jesus says we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the kingdom of God. Misery, guilt, sin, shame, that's the result of rebellion against God's order. So I'm sorry we didn't have time for questions immediately after this. Sit on your question, cool off, calm down, and then we'll deal with your uh, questions this evening. Thank you.